The murder of Specialist Vanessa Guillen in 2020 shocked the Army and the nation. As a result, the Secretary of the Army convened an independent committee of civilians to investigate the events at Fort Hood. The report introduced 70 recommendations to improve upon the ways in which the Army addresses sexual harassment and assault. Chris Swecker, JD81, chaired that committee. He joins us today for the first episode of The Legal Deep Podcast. The Legal Deep Podcast is a production of Wake Forest University School of Law. Each episode, we delve deeply into the work of our alumni and faculty to see how our law school community contributes to the big legal questions our society faces today. Hello, Chris, and welcome. I guess we should start with a very basic question. Back when you were younger, um, what made you decide to become a lawyer? <laughs> well, that's, a story. that's a story in and of itself. I, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, okay. and uh, I, was, I was an athlete, and these were the 70s, you know, it was, yeah. it was tumultuous times. And during a high school baseball game, there was a huge brawl in the middle of the game. And, and I, you know, through no fault of mine, it was literally, it was a inner city team versus a beach team. Oh, okay. And, so it was, there was, there was tension. <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot of tension. This was 1972. Okay. And so we, big brawl breaks out. I had nothing to do with it, but I was moving. I was a catcher. I was moving towards the brawl and uh, <laughs> it was at first base and the batter came up behind me and took a full swing and knocked me out with a baseball bat. Damn. When, when the dust settled, uh, two of us were down with, you know, head injuries and, and then a couple other with a couple broken jaws. And stuff. It was really rough. That's, uh, that sounds intense. <laughs> yeah. My brother was on the team and he said, I saw you go down. And he said, that was over. You, know, you just felt like a sack of potatoes. But anyway, we went through court cases because the guy that hit me was uh, charged with assault. We went through court cases and I, I was a witness and I went to court quite a few times and I got in, I, I just got enamored of the courtroom. And yeah. that's what I just, I'd write in high school, I decided I want to go to law school. Uh-huh. So I went on to App State uh, to play football there. And uh, first semester, I didn't do so well. And, I, and I, I challenged myself after that to make some grades. And I, I was good enough to... Uh, wasn't a football star, but I played four years and uh, got into Wake. So oh. Wake in 78, straight through from, you know, undergrad to Wake, three years at Wake. And consistent with my, you know, want, my desire to be in the courtroom, I took a job with the district attorney's office in the first district, which is up in the northeast part of the state. Okay. Up there you ride. And that's where I met, uh, you know, well, I knew Dave Sousa in law school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Dave uh, went to the same city, Elizabeth City. I was covering all the outer banks and uh, uh, seven counties in that region. He was working with a big law, uh, the biggest law firm in that area. So we uh, roomed together. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you mentioned, Betty, so she mentioned something about that, where you guys yeah. were. <laughs> he knew you back. I've known, ben, <laughs> I've known Betty and Dave since, since law school. Since law school? Um, yeah. yeah. So here's, the, here's the, the kicker. When I was a third year law student at Wake, the FBI sent a recruiter, which they did to all the law schools. Okay. And I saw a bulletin on the board that said, you know, uh, FBI recruiter coming to the campus, going to talk to the law students, 30 year law students. So I listened to him. I went and it, it, he later became a good friend of mine, Chuck Richards. He's six foot nine. <laughs> it's pretty six imposing. Nine, played yeah. <laughs> played pro, pro basketball for a few years before he went in the FBI. And, and uh, you know, I, being a former athlete, you know, I, I 
I heard his message. It was, it was all about you know camaraderie and and the mission and esprit de corps and all that. So yeah. As a backup, I did put in an application. At some point, the application started to move quick, more quickly. It started to move through the system, mm -hmm. and the two uh, two FBI agents. Th there was an FBI office right across the hall from the DA's office. Okay, so it was yeah, the same building. I had coffee like with the guy every day. <laughs> yeah, talk about uh, you know serendipitous yeah. events, things that you know in, in certain times in your life when you have to make decisions. Well, here here's yeah. the two agents right across the street. They're actually doing my background investigation. We're going fishing together. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> every yeah. Yeah. What about this credit card? What about this? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they even had me send another picture in because my hair was too long at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> when you when you applied in law school. Yeah. 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 So uh, when the time came in 1982, and, and it was the summer of 82, I um, I was faced with the decision of, okay, I've got a law degree, and my fiance said, look, you got this law degree. Why do you want to go in the FBI? What, you know, what's the attraction there? Mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I had always, you know, I'd grown up with the FBI. You, know, uh, you mm -hmm. don't remember that show, but there was a show about the FBI, Efren Zembalist Jr. Okay. Uh, it was a, it was a, it, it was a show that I never missed and it captured my imagination. So I made the tough decision to go, go into the Bureau and go to the FBI Academy. And I thought I was, uh, you know, I kept my law bar membership current because I had passed both Virginia and North Carolina. So I kept my bar membership current. And I, you know, I was, I was captivated from the very start. I went back to Charlotte, worked at motorcycle gangs right out of the box, right out of the chute. Is that, uh, is that like uh, you were investigating them or was it like uh, undercover work or how? Like, I was, we were investigating. There was a huge undercover operation, but I wasn't the undercover agent, obviously. They don't, wouldn't yeah. use a new agent for that. Oh, okay. We had two very experienced agents that were riding with the outlaws and uh, they were at war with the Hells Angels at the time. So it was, it was an interesting time frame. Yeah. Um, got to see a lot uh, during that time and then got orders to Oklahoma City and worked the bikers out there. And then I worked some drug cartel work. And that was when Miami was kicking in. Right. It was nuts. So, you know, was, that's about all I know. You know, Netflix. Have you seen that show? Uh, Narcos? Narcos is right on. It's spot yeah. on. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's spot on. Every detail is right. That's great. Yeah. That's good Even to know. Characters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're yeah. watching that show. You're, you're looking at something that's fairly authentic. Uh, that's 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 good to know. Yeah. I, they, I guess they do a good job to try to get, um, you know, get it right. Yeah. So it's 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 history. Slash, it's like a you know, drama, drama, documentary type Docu drama kind of. Yeah. Docudrama, there you go. <laughs> the character, characters are great. Uh, so I, in between, actually in between Oklahoma city and, and Miami, uh, you know, I, I, in Oklahoma city, I worked the, the cartels, which put me in touch with the Miami office all the time because everything was out of Miami. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, I, so, uh, it came time for me to go to a, a big office. You had to go to a big office for your third transfer. So they were going to send me to Philly, mm -hmm. but I had a friend in D.C. who was in the general counsel's office. Who, and back then, the FBI staffed the general counsel's office with agents. Mm -hmm. okay. now, now, you know, uh, now that all outside attorneys, they recruit outside the FBI. But at the time, they took agent attorneys and staffed the general counsel's office. So you'd rotate through uh, for a two year stint. So I decided to do that instead of going to Philly. Okay. And I spent two years in the civil litigation unit at headquarters. So, you know, all, all the whole time I'm using my law degree. 
Yeah. You know, not once I, I kept my bar membership current. You know, you learn quite a bit in law school and in building tr cases for trial right. about how to get facts, how to use facts, uh, how to, you know, how, how they fit into an, a, a story that you have to tell mm -hmm. and how the facts will kind of lead you where you, you need to go. They'll, they'll tell the story you can't without, you know, without steering. Yeah. And so, and so that, I, that was going to be my next question. Like, how did like your, your law education prepare you for that? And it sounds like it was, uh, you know, extremely relevant. It was, it put me in a great position vis-a-vis -vis other agents and, and in dealing with the prosecutors, because I'd been a prosecutor. Right. Yeah. And then I had several other, you know, I met quite a few other agents that had been in, you know, had been attorneys and they wanted something different. Right. So, uh, and then I, I really learned a lot in those two years in civil lit and dealt with the Justice Department, Justice Department attorneys. Uh, you also see where, you know, we were defending agents mainly that were sued in the Bureau, uh, you know, all the lawsuits, various lawsuits against the Bureau. So okay. we got to learn where you things could go wrong. And we got a history lesson. You know, you went back to a lot of the lawsuits went back to the 70s and 60s mm -hmm. before FISA, before there were all the different rules, even uh you know, criminal wiretaps were in their infancy. So, oh, wow. okay. So yeah, you got, so, so you got all the files. Yeah. So you got to uh, kind of uh, help shape some, did you get to help like kind of shape some of that policy and how, you know, uh, sure. like the, the legalities behind all of that, like the stuff we see on TV, I guess now, <laughs> yeah. kind of take it for granted. That was all the stuff you guys were doing back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you have a, I have a depth of understanding about FISA and how it came about, why it came about. Patriot Act, all of that, and, and you can trace the evolution of all of that from the 60s. Yeah. Where there were no rules, so the rules were being made up. So, no, you know, you want to do a go into somebody's house and, and, and uh, take records out. Yeah. You know, in the interest of national security, you just did it. Yeah. You know, the top, top guy would sign off on the uh, request and then they just did it. Called, they called them black bag jobs. Mm -hmm. So, that, that was a fascinating history lesson. I got to see, you know, the whole. Uh, Cohen, I don't know if you remember all these things, but COINTELPRO, which was the FBI sort of pitting, uh, in, secretly pitting groups against each other. Oh, so, okay. Protesting. Yeah, I, I haven't really heard much about, I mean, you know, like I've, I've, I've heard how they pretty much had files on everybody. Like they were just, you know, you were prominent. They were listening to you and just kind of like Martin, keeping tabs on you. <laughs> Martin Luther King, Jane yeah. Fonda, the Kennedys, there were files on, really there were files on everybody. Anybody that talk to someone who was a member of the communist party or the socialist workers party. Right. Yeah. There was a file. Yeah. And so all that got sorted out through lawsuits and stuff after the freedom of information act and all that okay. stuff came to light. Um, so anyway, I didn't, I didn't mean to divert, but, um, yeah, no, that's perfect. No, that's fine. Um, yeah, again, uh, more perspective on, on, you know, moving through with the law degree, a mm -hmm. sort of a non-traditional career. One of the things that it helped with, I could draft warrants, I could draft affidavits for you know different legal process. Right. A lot of agents had trouble with that, and it, it gave me a leg up. So anyway, I raised my hand. When my two years was done, I raised my hand to go to Miami. Yeah, went down there for eight years Rough and life. <laughs> that if you watch Narcos, uh, there's a there's a whole year on or two on the Medellin cartel. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was. We were working both Cali and Medellin, but I got oh, okay. to see how they operated and. Yeah, I could get Harry. It was Harry at times. We traveled down to Columbia. We traveled through the islands and did a lot of really, really innovative yeah. stuff. We did some other undercover work in uh, Guatemala. Did some, you know, we call them 
uh, controlled deliveries where we would compromise a, a drug pilot and then we'd get them to fly the loads and let and show us, you know, so we'd know where they were going. But there were okay. a lot of them were hopping through Guatemala. The yeah, time. there's a there's entire communities in Guatemala where they, you know, like up in there's like a, a right. range where it's like they just sort of like they built like airstrips, you know, and they, it's like a full on operation where they're constantly flying yeah. in and out. And the government's just like, oh, well, we, you know, <laughs> we don't well, have that robust uh, legal <laughs> legal system as uh, I mean, you know, they try we, but it's not, you know, like the US, <laughs> like the FBI. Uh, I, I, I understand that dynamic so well. Plomo or Plata? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that, so, you know, that brings up an interesting point. So eight years in Miami, I got, uh, you know, it's like going into a war zone at that time. So you get a lot of experience real quickly. And, and I started to rise, go up the ladder and, and get noticed. And uh, I ended up going, following the drugs to the Southwest border. I went to Houston, mm-hmm. of course, dragging the family along the whole way with three girls <laughs> at that point. And uh, Houston was a, another interesting experience because we worked all the way down to Matamoros. Okay. And, all the way down. Uh, we had liaison responsibility, 20 miles inside the border, inside into Mexico. So oh, we covered okay. Houston all the way down to, to, through Corpus down to uh, um, Brownsville and into Matamoros. Okay. So and all that stuff, it, all, the, all those places are still kind of hotbeds, right? For for all of this stuff. <laughs> absolutely. Brownsville is you know Matamoros is is a what they call a plaza. Right. Okay. You know what that is? It's an entryway. Yeah. That, was controlled by the Gulf Cartel for a long time, Juan Garcia Abrego, and now it's, it's all splintered. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I get through the the '90s, and they uh, had a lot of experience. The FBI made me an inspector. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that that's a that's a that's a jumping point to go head up your own office. So for a year, you go around and conduct audits and inspections of FBI offices. Oh, okay. So that that brings me around to Fort Hood because I that that developed a skill that I that I use quite a bit even to this day, mm-hmm. where you go in and you inspect something independently from the outside, right. make sure it's running the way it's supposed to be in, in every way, you know, every po- way possible. Right. And I, so I became a you know a full inspector for a year. So that gave so me- what's the context for that? So you go in and you sort of have a like a, they have like a charter of how it should be and then you kind of investigate how it's running and then sort of compare the two and then make your recommendation or your findings or whatever Is findings that exactly that's it that's exactly how it works there's an office of inspections at fbi headquarters so the theory behind that was we they would rather do their own clean up their own uh their, their own compliance issues and and effectiveness issues than have the doj inspector general come in the FBI is a bureau of the Department of Justice, so technically they're under the jurisdiction of the Inspector General of the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. So by cleaning up their own house with yeah. inspections, what was what was really fascinating about it is you were you were judging your own peers in a sense. So it's basically what you did at Fort Hood as well, right? <laughs> you went and, in and, and yeah. other places as well. So it was a skill. Um, you, I would take, you'd take about a team of about 40 people and you'd get it done. You know, you do all your interviews, look at all your documents, talk to out people outside, uh, how, you know, the U.S. attorney, how's the FBI doing? Are they doing the right thing? Are they addressing the right crime problems? Go to the community leaders, go to the, you know, all the different out the police chiefs, the sheriffs and all that, yeah. et cetera. Then you, by the time you leave there, uh, 
by the third week, you have a draft report. Okay. So it's, it is three weeks of crunch. Okay. You're working 14 to 15 hour days and getting it done, which, so again, that, that became a, that I just put that into the inventory of skills and moved on. Yeah. Came to, uh, from there, came to North Carolina as the special agent in charge in 99. Oh, so you got to pick NC as your, as your sort of your well, office. When there's an opening, you can raise your hand. That doesn't okay. mean you're going to get it, but it means right. you want to be considered. Got it. Now, uh, I was lucky enough to come back to North Carolina. So uh, during that time, however, after, in 2003, if you recall, uh, George Bush was president, we went into Iraq and right. our military forces invaded Iraq. We were still chasing terrorists all over the, you know, all over the globe and yeah. trying to extend the FBI's reach. So the FBI decided we're going to send some agents to Iraq and be with the troops and see if we can find some terrorists over there. In theory, um, that's a terrorist honeypot. So we're going to find more terrorists in Iraq right now than we're going to find in anywhere the, else. The, yeah. So they sent me to Baghdad. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> yeah, with about 40 agents and a, you know, a, a protection detail. And I, I, uh, they set up shop there uh, with me interfacing with the coalition provisional authority under Ambassador Bremer. And so I, my job was to liaise with all the generals and all the brass and all the, you know, the civilian authorities. Then my, uh, my contingent of agents were initially uh, helping, helping with the interviews of foreign fighters uh, that were caught on the battlefield. So right. Yemen, Yemen, people from Yemen, people from Syria, Iran, you know, as a terrorist honeypot, it, there was an insurgency, but there was also the beginnings of what we now, you know, what we now call ISIS. And so, so uh, in, um, the, uh, yeah, that's, that's really just sort of brings up the point to how, like with, uh, you know, as you were the liaison uh, between, you know, was it the FBI and the sort of the military? Um, yeah. Were you uh, kind of also getting to either, I don't know, I guess, I don't, I, I don't know how to put it, but like in terms of like the legalities of the interrogations, was that part of your, oh, as part of yeah. your background? Yeah. Was that Was yeah. that like a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, so I was interacting, and I, they even put me in a little uh, hut with a deputy undersecretary of defense, mm -hmm. uh, which plays into the Fort Hood thing, because he later was the guy that recommended me to do the Fort Hood oh, review. Oh, okay, yeah. From the FBI. So, I, you know, just to to wrap up the bureau career, Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, you know, I came back from Iraq, got some, uh, you know, the highest FBI uh, award for my time there. They promoted me up to headquarters to head up the criminal division of the FBI. So I spent my last two years uh, in the number three position in the bureau, running the crim all criminal, cyber, and international operations. Okay, that was an interesting time. I, I was directly under Robert Mueller. Oh, okay. Jim Comey was the deputy attorney general, so I dealt with him on, on a daily basis. On oh, not, a, I mean, you know, a weekly basis, and I dealt with all the names that you you've read about. And so, uh, so is that? Do you think? Would you say that's uh, doing these investigations is the the sort of the core of your practice these days? Uh, it has it, it, it sort of evolved that way. Uh, after that, I did a review of the Highway Patrol. Uh, I did a uh, I did a review of a nuclear power plant, the Vogel nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. um, looking at it both from legal perspective, but also from uh, security and risk perspective. So the merger to me, it was my skills became sort of the merger of security, risk, law, and and uh, you know the backdrop of. of just general legal issues involving yeah. security and, and risk. Um, 
then I, you know, most recently, right before Fort Hood, I got it, uh, hired by the University of North Carolina to conduct a uh, review of their Silent Sam monument situation. Right. Yeah, that, that was one of the pieces uh, Betty brought up. Brought up uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you were to say, what's your most recent projects? My three most recent projects would be um, that, you know, the review of the Silent Sam situation on the Fort, I mean, on the Chapel Hill campus. Mm -hmm. um, and Fort Hood and uh, probably the SBI lab. Right. Those would be the three pieces of work that you'd probably most be most recognizable. Yeah. The most challenging, sorry. which one of those would be the most challenging that you found in terms of, you know, that I guess, yeah, I guess that's yeah. just, yeah. Fort Hood, um, yeah. then the army. I, I got, because of my time in Baghdad, and I, we're in, that was in 2003, so we're in 2020. Right. And it's uh, July of 2020, and I get a call from the guy that I, you know, some of the, this deputy undersecretary who has since retired, and he said, my neighbor is, uh, is the secretary of the army. He's looking, he's got a problem out there. You know, we had the, the murder of Vanessa Guillen. Yeah. Um, yeah. You had missing soldiers. You had missing, uh, you had sexual assaults. You had all kinds of bad things happening out there. And the Hispanic community was up in arms because they 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 felt that Vanessa was neglected and, and discounted because she was an Hispanic female soldier. Mm -hmm. So the, the Congress, the entire congressional delegation from Texas was up in arms. They were marching in Houston. You know, it was it was becoming a big thing. And it wasn't just that issue. It was the issue of missing soldiers, right. crime rates. What the hell's going on at Fort Hood? So the Secretary of the Army called me and said, I, I want you to lead an independent review. We're gonna appoint five lawyers or five people to this committee, and the Army is gonna go outside the Army and have an independent review. Because of your background, we want you to lead this review. Over the past five months, I have asked an independent review committee to look into the command climate at Fort Hood, Texas. While the review focused on Fort Hood, there are army-wide implications. Today, I am sharing the actions we are taking in response to that review and the observations of the chief, the sergeant major of the army, and I over the last five months. So we had the, we had the chairman of McGuire Woods, which is one of the largest law firms in the country, mm -hmm. um, who's an African-American attorney. We had another uh, high-profile African-American attorney from D.C. Mm -hmm. We had uh, the head of the Hispanic uh, uh, caucus in, in uh, San Antonio, mm -hmm. uh, Keto Rodriguez, and, as a committee member. And then we had uh, Kerry Ricci, who was a Puerto Rican-American lawyer out of D.C. So we had a nice, diverse panel yeah. or committee. Um, so we, you know, we met with the Secretary of the Army. We, we got our mandate. And then we had to draw up a game plan. And so first couple meetings with this group, I realized they had no experience in this area. We had to design, we had to make up something, a template for something that had never been done before. So we, we did, and I, I modeled it after an FBI inspection. And you know, I said, look, we're gonna, we're gonna start at the epicenter of, of this, of the problem there. And that's the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, which was a, a brigade, a regiment of about 4,500 soldiers with about 300 females. But they're hardcore combat brigade that seemed to be where the problems emanated from. 
And so we, we just I put together a game plan where we would interview every female soldier in, uh, in that brigade. Who leads the league in AWOL? Who leads the league in suicides? Who leads the league in, in uh, desertion? Who leads the league in, in uh, disciplinary actions? It all came back to Fort Hood. Evidence became mounted. The women were telling us things about sexual assaults. Um, we were getting great information from outside, you know, the police chiefs, the FBI, all the federal agencies. So bottom line is we came up with a, a, a bit of a bombshell of a report. It definitely uh, is, uh, it's, you know, not a bit of a bombshell, it's a big bombshell, <laughs> you know, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These actions are consistent with the decision to elevate people to our number one priority and our efforts to provide increased time for our leaders to train and care for their soldiers. There is no greater responsibility than caring for our nation's sons and daughters. I mean, we were told by the Secretary of the Army, first of all, we made uh, 70 recommendations. They accepted every single one. That report was probably the best piece of work I have ever done. Yeah. And I did it because I, I didn't want to damage the Army, the very people that are going out there to protect us and have been right. fighting wars for the last 20 years. Right. You know, walking that delicate line, yeah. we realized that war fighting is, was all they were doing they had were neglecting their people right and we had to call it out and we felt like you know that some very good war fighters were probably going to get disciplined mm -hmm. but we had to make that hard call because it wasn't even it actually wasn't even a close call right and you know the, the result was 14 uh, officers have been dis have been suspended right and there have been more since then but they, we were told that the army is going to is rolling this out across the army yeah. all 70 recommendations. So we, we feel like we five or we 10 made some significant inroads into f addressing a very serious cultural issue in the army. Yeah, I mean, it's everybody has blind spots, right? And, you know, yeah. like that was one of their big ones. And, and you yes. know, it's the kind of thing you don't really think about until it becomes right. a problem and, you know, yeah. Did you find any pushback or any sort of like, uh, you know, I mean, I imagine you did, but was it a, you know, how, how did you handle that type of, scenario <laughs> but here's the, here's the big uh, here's the real big kicker i think the biggest pushback came from the jags from oh, the jags okay. attorneys um they seem to me to be very protective of the army as opposed to protective of the women oh and you know you have both prosecutors and defense and the jag corps um the defense attorneys were were are, they're sort of independent they were they were very uh, reticent to talk to us but the, the the rest of the jag corps seemed to me to be extremely extremely protective of the armies and the the army and the officers in the army that they were serving hmm. now i i was shocked to see that yeah actually. it's almost like that so they, they were more loyal to the institution than sort of the human rights aspect of the of the yeah problem. i mean yeah, and, and then frankly they were very very subject centric i mean they they were very concerned about due process and protecting the soldier mm -hmm. so much so that the victim got lost right process right and that the was victim, the core of the problem shaming, yeah victim uh victim discouragement victim um stigmatizing honestly i, I felt like the jag corps were in some ways enabling that right 
And that, that was, I imagine that was one of the recommendations you made or one of the observations you made and yes. part of the, the sort of re-education of the, of that, that, yeah. uh, that group. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we got the biggest pushback. Um, yeah. And that, that's the only place we got the pushback. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, kind of stepping back in like a sort of like, a, uh, so, you know, I wanted to get a sense for what was it that drew to you, drew you to Wake Forest Law and also yeah. like how, you know, uh, what, what sort of like seeds were planted there that sort of blossomed into like what, you know, what it, that you used during your career, you know, as, we've been talking a little bit about that, but maybe get more specific. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny. I, I mean, I was drawn to criminal law. I, I, didn't, I was interning every summer in the prosecutor's office in Virginia Beach. Mm -hmm. so I was drawn to criminal law. Rhoda Billings was a great professor. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of looked on her as, as a role model in, in many ways. I, you won't remember her, but she yeah. was one of the first you know, female judges. Uh, she was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court okay. uh, before she was prof professor at law, Wake Law. Um, professor Rose was there. You know, he, I still stay in touch with him. Foggy Divine. I mean, there, there were there were some very influential professors there who had been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they did is they taught me how to write. Okay. I, I thought I knew how to write, I, and I, you know, I, I could comprehend, and I made good grades in, in uh, undergraduate school. But you don't really, in my opinion, Dave Sousa and I talked about this. I never knew. I didn't know how to write well. Right. And, and you know, legal writing is is a different kind of writing. But legal writing is about you know, analyzing a set of facts and applying the law and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But making a persuasive argument one way or the other using factual information or, or you know, little little tidbits of facts. That That's what influenced me at Wake Forest was people like, you know, Professor Rose, Rhoda Billings. Um, and and frankly, Professor Rose told me uh, when I first met when Legal Bib, uh, my first writing pro uh, product, he said, this isn't very good. <laughs> yeah, which is what you were there for, right? You're gonna have to work on this, and I did. You know, I did. I worked hard at it, and I writing didn't come writing well didn't come natural to me. Analyzing and you know problems was never an issue, and, and in fact, you know, developing facts and analyzing facts, I could come to the right place, but writing your way to the right place and expressing it on on in a document was a different thing. So I came away with you know some some really really good skills. Right. That was, you know, applying the facts to the law, but being able to write and articulate that and construct an argument or construct right. a, a story out of that. And, and this is this is what you would do when you're basically like uh, setting up a case for a prosecutor, right? Like in the, yeah, absolutely. In the further after. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have for the first episode of the Legal Deep podcast. Thank you all for joining me. I am your host, Jorge Reina. And I want to once again thank Chris Swecker for sharing the compelling story of his brilliant legal career. Our music was written and produced by Jeff Tovar. This has been a production of Wake Forest University School of Law. See you in the next episode. Goodbye.